I want to greet you all this morning in the exemplary name of Jesus. Think of Jesus as our pattern and as our example. I want to give some careful thought to that this morning. Jesus as exemplary for our lives. I wonder if uh, you're a little bit like me, have a bit of a love-hate relationship about uh, church signs. When you're out and about driving around, you read a church sign. You ever see one that makes you squirm? Uh, Or you see one that blesses you and lifts your spirits. Maybe no one pays attention to them. I I can't go by a church sign without reading it. Uh, This past week or so, I drove past the church sign that made me squirm and then blessed me. So the sign said, we are a Facebook church. And I thought, hmm, I'm sure you are. Too bad for you. Oh, no, I don't, I don't mean to say that too strongly. I just, I'm not sure that would be the first thing we'd say to the community driving past our church. Is, hey, we're a Facebook church. Uh, but anyway, that was the end of the sign underneath. It said, uh, we seek God's face and we give careful attention to his book. You know, in that light, I would be glad to say to someone, would to God that we could say that, that we seek God's face and we give attention to his book. Um, could I ask a favor of the usher, just about a two-second bump for the, all the fans here. Could you turn them on and then back off? Okay, that was a bump. Thank you. Is it possible? Thank you. That's all I need. Is it possible that we just changed history by turning those fans on and off for two seconds? Have you ever heard of the butterfly effect? The idea is that weather is so complicated and the earth is so vast it's something as small as a butterfly lighting on a plant or flying off of a plant, say in China, 10 days later can change the course of a tornado. The multiplying effect of something as small as a butterfly moving a few air molecules around over time and over distance, significant changes. I don't know what you think about the butterfly effect, but it is the case that we're not always able to predict the impact in faraway lands or ages to come, the impact of our actions. I want to talk specifically about the brotherhood, the church of Jesus Christ, what we're faithful in, what we're unfaithful in, what we're casual about, and the riskiness of evaluating things by our judgment as far as the impact that our actions might or might not have on the future. I have a book I brought along. I don't know if anybody has any books they buy specifically to fall asleep. Uh, But I bought this at Abundant Blessings for $2. And it looked very dry and kind of boring and 
Sadly, it turned into a book that keeps me awake. Um, I can hardly put it down. And when I put it down, what I was reading is running through my head. And so I can't really read it at bedtime. But uh, I recommend it. It's a book called What If? And the person that organized the book took 44, he calls them, seminal events in human history. Um, Say the, the fall of the Third Reich or the defeat of the Spanish Armada by the British fleet in the 1500s. Major events. And he says, and makes a pretty good argument, that very small things tipped the balance on which way these events went. And so the Spanish Armada sailed to the English Channel to defeat the English fleet, and uh, the wind was about 20 degrees off of where it would normally be that time of year. And that left the Spanish Armada at a tremendous disadvantage to the British ships. And the British were outgunned and outmanned, and uh, the technology of the Spanish Armada was beyond Britain's. But Britain prevailed that day for the difference in a little bit of wind direction. Uh, the, author then, or the authors go on to speculate, for example, if Britain had not defeated the Spanish Armada. Spain was prepared to invade it and take over the British Isles. And Britain's activities in North America would have been at an end. And very likely not just South and Central America, but North America would be speaking Spanish, possibly even a third world country, possibly still um, practicing slavery. Um, the butterfly effect. What seem to be small things making massive changes. There's a, another story about the Third Reich and Hitler, and uh, more than a few times that Hitler and the Third Reich defeating the Allies was in the balance. Could have gone either way, and one day it rained, and uh, Rommel's artillery got stuck in the mud, and uh, a battle was lost, and a, a continent was lost, and a war was lost, and it hadn't rained that day. I hear German here sometimes. We might be hearing a lot more German. We might not be acknowledging the sovereign over this nation of President Biden, but uh, a Fuhrer grandson of Hitler. That might sound ridiculous to you, but these are the kind of things in history that are making dramatic impact. And I'd like to make the point that at the time they happened, they seemed small, they seemed insignificant, they seemed like something we could be casual about, because what could have mattered? So I'm continuing my sermon from last time. You remember I had titled it with the phrase from Paul's uh, testimony to the Corinthians that um, being reviled, we bless. Being reviled with bless. We want to talk about our responsibility as God's people, our, our qualification as God's people to be non-resistant, yes, but beyond non-resistant. That is returning blessing or cursing. I want to talk about the difference between non-resistance and returning a blessing to people that would appear to be our enemies. Small things have a surprising ability 
to change history. I'm going to say especially in the church. In two years, we're going to observe the 500th anniversary of the birth of Anabaptism, if you want to call it that, the, the first Anabaptist baptismal meeting. Um, we know names like Conrad Grebel and Michael Sattler, George Blaurock, Felix Monts, we call them founders of Anabaptism. That may or may not be just perfectly accurate, but it's a convenient way to think about it. We're coming up in two years on January 21st, 2025, 500 years, five centuries. Bless God for that. At that time, these men, these pillars of Anabaptism, if, I don't know if they'd want to be called that. I don't know what else to call them. But they adopted some distinctives in the, the Schleitheim uh, Confession, laid out some things that were distinctives in Anabaptism. And some phrases from Scripture have become watchwords. I think I can mention a few of these phrases, and you all will say, yes, of course. That identifies us. That's who we are. Uh, believers' baptism. That was a new thought. Those were fighting words 500 years ago. Uh, be not conformed. Nonconformity. Resist not evil. Swear not at all. Let her be covered. Let man not put asunder. These are some things that the early Anabaptists took very seriously. I, I trust we've not lost our commitment to that. But I want to suggest one that maybe would have been helpful to adopt at that time. And that was um, to make the distinction between non-resistance and being reviled we bless. I'll just ask you to set that aside for a little bit now, but I want to lay that out, out front so you know a bit where I'm going. I want to talk about non-resistance as necessary um, as a child of God. Absolutely a qualification. And I, I'll take that from Scripture. But I also want to say that it isn't entirely sufficient. And that is that Paul and Peter in multiple places describe a responsibility that we take persecution, we take abuse, we take suffering, we take reviling, we take reproach, and return not a stone face, non-resistant, lay it on me, give me your best, you won't get a rise out of me. That would be non-resistance. We're called beyond that. We're called to perform blessing and return blessing as we love our enemies. So this is where we're headed and being reviled, we bless. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4? This is not my text, but this was Paul's text for this concept of a non-resistance that also returns blessing for injury. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Okay, in the middle of verse 12, we read this phrase, being reviled, we bless. Just take a few minutes and read verse 10 through 17 with a few comments. Paul begins here, speaking of apostles, I believe. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. You're honorable, but we are despised. 
Even under this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor working with our own hands. I'm just going to stop there and notice that Paul is saying, kind of with a bit of sarcasm or irony, don't get caught up in the idea that this suffering, this being despised, this being the off-scouring of the world, was Christ's experience, or was the apostles' experience, or was the early church fathers or the early Anabaptists. Experience, And we've inherited a cheaper, kinder, safer, gentler faith. And bless God for those that suffered and sacrificed before us. We have a pretty good. Paul would say, no. Let's read on. Paul's describing the cost of discipleship. And that cost is not only for himself. He goes on and says, in the middle of verse 12, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it, being defamed, we entreat, we are made as the filth of the world, we are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. So we see here that apostles are despised and they return blessing. And as we read on, we find out that it's not just our Lord it's not just his apostles, it's all disciples of Jesus. They're reviled and they return blessing for persecution. Let's read on. Uh, verse 13 ended, we're the off-scouring of all things unto this day. Verse 14, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved son, I warn you. I warn you, we're being warned here that our experience is very likely to match his. This is what he's warning us about. Verse 15, you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I've begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, and here the apostle begs us, be followers of me. He's saying be imitators of me. Your experience will be my experience, mine will be yours. Respond in the way I did, being reviled, we bless. I beseech you, be followers of me. For this cause I've sent unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in the church. Okay, a little bit of groundwork here. I want to turn to First Peter chapter 3 text of the day and find out another apostle, no surprise, preaching the same gospel. First Peter chapter 3. Starting in verse 8. I'm going to read verse 8 and 9. That would be my text for the day. And then I'm going to go on and Peter is going to liberally quote from Psalm 34. He's going to quote David, the psalmist, in verse 34, describing the consequences and the blessings of returning blessing for suffering. Read with me, starting in verse 8. Finally, be you all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. 
colon. You see this brotherhood context moves on from verse 8 to verse 9. Shocking as it is, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise, blessing. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips, that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that, whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Okay, I'm going to stop there. I want to notice a few things here. I'm going to I think I'm going to try to use the board for this. Uh, I really appreciated Alvin a couple times giving us a picture of the last two sermons of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world. And uh, I always kind of tremble a little bit to try to put something so important down in the simple diagram. So bear with me, I realize not the best way to teach about the two kingdoms. He, asked, he didn't know which one, how to put one higher and how much higher. One bigger, one smaller. I don't know what to do about any of that either, but one thing I do think about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world is that there's nothing outside those two kingdoms. There's no overlap, there's no fuzzy boundaries. Um, there's no no man's land or middle ground where people that are virtuous and we appreciate but aren't in the kingdom, we just seem to have the kingdom. That seems to be the teaching of Scripture. So we have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world and nothing else as far as our reason. That's the thing we expect from the kingdom of God. Look, God is light. Kingdom of this world, darkness. Kingdom of God is holy. Kingdom of this world is God is composed of justice. Kingdom of this world, still time, injustice. Right, the kingdom of God experiences an exalting and glorified God in its unity. 
Give me another squirrel. Give me a look. Strike. Give me a God. The symbol we grounded on love. Give me another squirrel. We expect and experience in the kingdom of God's goodness. Kingdom of this world at its core. But last message I described the fact that much as Paul warns us, he's experienced being the offscouring of the world. And as your father, I've begotten you by the gospel, and I warn you. Be followers of me. Expect the same. Peter is warning us here about, a, about an imminent invasion. We understand there's a conflict. There's a warfare between these two kingdoms. And the warning that we get here from Peter, in 1 Peter 3, verse 8 and verse 9, is there's an invasion going on. There's a trespassing. strife and hostility that have no place, that have no business among the people of God, in the kingdom of God, have drawn up battle lines, assembled themselves, and invaded the kingdom. I said there's no overlap, there's no fuzzy boundaries, there's no uh, in-between or lack of clarity between these kingdoms, but there is, in this case, an invading force where the strife, the hostility of the world invades these hallowed walls, if we can say that. I realize the walls aren't hallowed. I think you know what I mean. The world's hostility, the world's division has and will continue to breach the walls of the kingdom of God. That will be our experience, and that's the warning that we get here in 1 Peter 3, Verse 9, we're warned. Be aware. You need to be in a brotherhood context. We see in verse 8, the equipping that we have to absorb this is that we are to be of one mind. We have compassion one of another. We love each other. We're brethren. We're pitiful. We're courteous. Colon goes on, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. Now, this isn't just butterfly wings. It does seem rather small. Okay, if, say, I'm uh, an object of uh, attack, so it seems to me, in a brotherhood, and my response is stoic, and I'm, I'm not resisting. Uh, it's just running off me. I'm, it doesn't bother me. Or say I'm uh, in a position of mistreating someone else. And they're non-resistant. Well, all that happens is they silently don't resist. I said that that's necessary for the child of God, but not sufficient. Because our calling, whether it's Paul, who says, be imitators of me, or Peter, who says, uh, when division and hostility invades the brotherhood, your response to it is to return blessing. It's not to silently take it. We don't consider ourselves successful and a powerful testimony for the kingdom of God if we absorb abuse 
we are called to return love, return blessing. Let's talk a little bit more about that. When I talked about the uh, butterfly wings thing, I just considering how often we speak of being a non-resistant people and bless God that we are, I'm very thankful to come into these circles and found an appreciation for something I didn't grow up with, which is the blessing of being non-resistant in Christ's pattern. But Peter goes on here and describes Christ's pattern in more fullness. Christ did not simply remain silent like a sheep to the shears or like a lamb to the slaughter. He didn't just remain silent. He returned blessing as he suffered. We're called to follow that. And verse 9 says, uh, even knowing that you are there and too cold. It's nothing less than our calling. What we're talking about here is more than butterfly wings. So my question is, if we survey conservative Anabaptism 498 years in, we see a lot of things to be thankful for. We experience a lot of blessings. And yet, I think we're honest enough to say there's probably some areas we could grow in. And I wonder if this is something that we've missed. I know for myself, this has been the uh, past few months I've been studying in the scripture and it's been a real wrestling match. I would prefer to be sufficient if I can just be non-resistant, but to return to enemies, whether within or without, to return blessing is, oh, it's a high calling. Christ is asking for a response more sanctified, more obedient than just non-resistance. He deserves it. He desires it. He's, can we say he's demanding it? I, I realize that doesn't sound very gentle, but it is, a, it is an unconditional command here of Christ through the Spirit from the Apostle Peter that we return blessing for persecution. Turn back a chapter to chapter 2 and verse 19. Uh, This was already preached. I don't mean to belabor this, but this was Christ's example. This was Christ's not simply non-resistance, but returning blessing. And I think it's an important distinction. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 19 starts out, this is thankworthy. The, The word there is charis, if you remember. That's basically, this is the grace of God. You want to know what the grace of God looks like? Peter's saying this is charis. This is the grace of God. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Now, let's make it clear here. What glory is it if you're buffeted for your faults? Well, if you are buffeted and you've been an evildoer, you've done wrong, well, shame on you. That's not the discussion here. There's no, uh, there's no glory for Christ in misdeeds that you're called to the carpet on. Be clear about that. What glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently, but if when you do well, you suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is charis. This is the grace of God. For even hereunto were you called. It's a pretty, pretty important statement. It says, this is the purpose for the church. This was the purpose for our calling. Even hereunto were you called. Christ suffered for us. He left us an example. We should follow in his steps. 
He did no sin, no guile in his mouth. Okay, he wasn't guilty of wrongdoing. Uh, he's going to take some persecution here, and it's through no fault of his own. No sin, no guile in his mouth. That's for us. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Okay, this is non-resistance. Christ was attacked. Christ was tortured. Christ was crucified. And he didn't call down the legions of angels that he could easily have called. He trusted himself to him that judgeth righteously. But there's a colon at the end of verse 23, and it goes on. And this is the returning blessing, the persecution. He goes on. Who? His own self bore our sins. That is our sins that were the persecutors. We were the revilers. Who killed Christ? Was it the Romans or the Jews? Yes. And us. Our sin required that. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Our persecution, if you will, had a blessing returned from Christ. Not just non-resistance, but being reviled, he blessed. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. It goes on to say, by his stripes you were healed. The healing we experience as the children of God is direct result. Indirectly, our persecution, the, the blame for our sins that was paid for by Christ, healed us. It's the blessing he returned. All right. Back to the text and back to verse 8 and 9. Chapter 3, verse 8. Last message, we spent some time talking about the word finally as telos and the fact that it doesn't just mean lastly. This is the last in this section, the last of four relationships that were called to a superhuman level of sanctification in. That is where to be obey every ordinance of man, foolish and ignorant as they are. We all know that. We submit to them for the Lord's sake. We have the opportunity as servants of masters to serve unworthy masters who are corrupt, crooked, broken, vile. Called to submit to them, shockingly. Wives are called to be in subjection to husbands, even disobedient, unworthy ones. And come to the fourth relationship. And the word finally is telos. And it fascinated me that in the Sunday school lesson today, the word telos was used in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 16. The wrath of God has come upon them, speaking of the Jews, to the uttermost. That is ultimately totality. I don't know what a small dose of God's wrath looks like, but they will experience the uttermost every drop of God's wrath, the telos. Anyway, in our text today, it starts with the word finally, telos. We can say lastly, okay, we had four relationships to cover, and this, this is the fourth, it's the last one, finally. But more accurate would be to say of utmost importance. Everything else is coming to a head here within the brotherhood. There's an invasion, we're struggling uh, God forbid, if we are a source of strife or hostility or contributing to it, um, yeah, God help us and we need to confess and repent. I know I have responsibility and have been times been able to uh, reduce 
or not be a source of strife and hostility. But I think many of us might understand what it is to not necessarily um, quench that fire, but participate in it. Well, here it is. Finally, ultimately, tell us utmost importance. All right. Wanted to talk about how we respond to good and evil. Um, I'm going to just do that on the board. Hoping this tissue does a good job, right? Uh, 
receiving evil and returning good. This is mercy. I don't know if this is totally accurate, but I've always been taught that mercy is not receiving what you deserve. The mercy of God. We deserve for our sinful lives. We deserve the rest of God. It's the mercy of God that we're not consumed. When we return for evil, we return good. Okay. Actually, no, sorry to take it there. I missed mine. If we receive evil and return non existence, that is, we give back nothing. Push comes to shove, we're not pushing and shoving. We know we're called to that. We're non resistant. We absorb evil, falls off us like water off a duck's back. Doesn't affect us. There it is. There's the evil. Here I am. That's non resistance. That is mercy. That is, the source of the evil could expect, that made an enemy and could expect, uh, expect evil back. Evil for evil, that's only fair. It's only just. And then lastly, we receive evil and return blood. We curse and return good. This is grace. Mercy is not giving back what is deserved. Grace is giving what is not deserved. This is what this is the body of Christ. This is kind of my point in sermon. Make the distinction between a merciful response and a gracious response. We've all experienced, we're children of God, experienced the grace of God. We have brought to the table of salvation, if you will, we've brought evil to that table and left with blessing. We've been, at some level, at some time, we've been cursors of Christ. And he healed us with his stripes. The grace of God defines the body of Christ. All right. I want to uh, close with Matthew 5. To turn to Matthew 5, I want to notice a distinction Jesus makes between non-resistance and being reviled with bless. So we come to Matthew 5, verse 9. You know, having preached through Ephesians, I kind of wrestled with the difference between Ephesians 4, verse 2, and Matthew 5, verse 9. Ephesians 4 says that we're to keep the unity of the Spirit. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. So our job assigned in Ephesians 4 is you're given something precious. It costs the blood of Jesus. You have unity of the spirit. Guard it. Hang on to it. Protect it. Don't contribute to breaking it down. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. But here in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. You've probably heard this said before, but I think it's important. 
We're not just called to preserve peace. We're called to transform strife and hostility into peace, whatever it takes. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then this qualification. Peacemakers will be called the children of God. To the extent that we're not peacemakers, it calls into question our testimony as children of God. Verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Have you ever been persecuted for righteousness' sake? I'm not sure I can say I have. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you were, but did you feel blessed? I mean, the scripture says you're blessed. We know you're blessed, but did you feel blessed? Verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are ye when men shall revile and persecute and say, evil against you falsely for my sake. Have you been reviled, persecuted, had evil said against you for Jesus' sake? Did you feel blessed? I think that this concept of returning blessing for cursing is wrapped up in verse 12. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. I think Jesus knew that it wasn't going to feel blessed to experience these things. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Great is your reward in heaven. I think that the cost of returning good for evil is high in this world, but the return is inestimable in the world to come. Rejoice, be exceeding glad, not because it's going to feel good and not because you're going to feel blessed, not because people are going to look at you and say, wow, that's a righteous man, that's a righteous sister, but because your reward is great in heaven. goes on to say you're the salt of the earth, but if salt lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? What is savory salt? I think savory salt is salt that has returned blessing for curse. It says, goes on and says, verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. What is a city set on a hill? I think it's a brotherhood that's practicing this. We recognize the invasion of division and hostility from the world, and we cast it out. We reject it. We snuff it out because it can't exist. Maybe you've heard the expression, it takes two to fight. Well, that's just manifestly true. And if we as a brotherhood are preparing ourselves, expecting an attack, it's going to look like this. And no matter what, we're going to follow Christ's example. He took being reviled. He took suffering. He took persecution. He returned blessing. He healed us with those same stripes we inflicted on him. We follow this example. We experience being a city on a hill. A candle on a candlestick, same thing. A light that shines before men. Good works. What are those good works? I've, I've wrestled with this. Do I have the freedom to decide what good works my life is going to produce to glorify God? I'm not sure I do. I think first I need to follow the instructions. Paul's calling, Peter's calling, is to return good for evil. Dropping down to verse 38. Jesus says, 
He's going to describe here going beyond non-resistance. Verse 38, you've heard it's been said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's retaliation. I say to you, resist not evil. Okay, we see that there's a but there. That's separating a good and a bad. Retaliation, uh, legal under the old covenant, but illegal under the new covenant. You've heard it said, eye for an eye. He hurt your eye, hurt his eye. Jesus says no. Verse 39, I say, resist not evil. But now there's another but. That is, there's a less good and a more good. Resist not evil, but whoever smites thee on the right cheek, take it without a word. Don't even flinch. Take the slap on the face. That's not what it says. It says, resist not evil, but whomsoever smites thee on the right cheek, bless him with the opportunity to strike the other. Verse 40, if any man will sue you at the law, take away your coat. The man stole my coat. He's a criminal. He deserves what's coming to him. Contact the police. No, that's retaliation. How about the man stole my coat? Fine, he can have it. Let it go. They make coats every day. I'll get another coat. That's non-resistance. We are called to returning good for evil. Man stole your coat? Give him your cloak. Bless him with your cloak. Return the evil deed with a deed of blessing. Verse 41, this, this pathetic person treated me like a slave. He demanded that I serve him for a mile. Fine, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm not going to tell you what I think of you for enslaving me for a mile. That's non-resistance. Returning good for evil Whoever compels thee to go a mile, give him another. Give to him that asks of thee, from him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. You've heard it said, love your enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. You know, I come to the end of the sermon, we say, where's the practical application? Well, there it is. I don't need to come up with it because Jesus did. Bless those that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Love your enemies. This is our calling. We notice in verse 45, strong word. I'm not here to say this closes the book on the subject. I'm not trying to draw the lines on the kingdom of God. That's obviously not my place, but I'm also not going to Step away from the fact that verse 45 says that love for enemies, blessing those that curse you, doing good to them that hate you, praying for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. The safest way to understand that is that that's not a Mennonite distinctive. Love for enemies, blessing them that curse you, praying for them that despitefully use you. That's not just for Mennonites. That is a qualification to be a child of your father, which is in heaven. So, I need to be careful that I wasn't unclear and say that returning good for evil is as small a thing as a butterfly taking off from a plant that has the power to change history. When I look back over five centuries or 20 centuries of church life, 
And I feel like a lot of the damaged testimony or the strife and hostility has devastated the testimony of not just our churches, but all churches. I think it would be earth shattering if we were the heirs to a church that was made it a pillar of the faith that no matter what we return good for evil. And we're expecting attack. Division, hostility coming into the brotherhood. Bring it. We have the grace of God and we know how to snuff it out. It can only do damage if we respond wrongly. Let's kneel for prayer.